Hello, I am Oliver Tonby. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. Asia is the world's largest regional economy. It is at the center of the technology revolution. It is at the center of consumption growth, consumers of the future. It is at the center of climate risk and what we need to do to mitigate. As our economies evolve further, Asia has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses everywhere. Welcome. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to everyone. My name is Wonsik Choi. I'm a senior partner with McKinsey & Company based in Seoul, Korea. I am delighted to host this episode in the Future of Asia podcast series on the topic of the future of consumers in Asia. I am joined by two colleagues who have led McKinsey's effort on the future of Asian consumer, Naomi Yamakawa, a partner based in Tokyo, Japan, and Tiago Devasa, a consultant based in Sydney, Australia. Naomi and Tiago, welcome. Thanks, Wonsik. Pleasure to join you. Hi, Wonsik. Thanks for having us. Naomi, uh, perhaps I'll start with you by asking an overarching question. It is no surprise that Asia will be at the center of the global economy, contributing to roughly 40% of global consumption and 50% of global GDP and purchasing power parity terms by 2040. What would you say are the key insights that you have drawn from your research on the future of consumers in Asia? I think the message that we're proud to give is Asia is still, as you mentioned, the world's consumption growth engine. It is a huge opportunity not to be missed, and you, everyone needs to keep a close eye. It is a ten trillion opportunity, right? So the pure scale of the impact in Asia will be something to really look forward to, and I'm excited as an Asia person to be witnessing this. The second thing that I think we really found is that the scaling of our economy won't be linear to what we've seen in the last 10 years. It is powerful demographic forces that are reshaping how consumer behavior really reacts. And therefore, how companies need to think about consumption patterns in Asia will also need to shift. And I guess the third point is really how companies embrace this change. They will need to understand, track the change, and really adjust their strategy to really a new map of consumption growth that will look different in Asia. And therefore, the angles of growth that they need to look forward to will be very different depending on the sector and the business model that they're in. All of that sounds like nothing short of a truly exciting outlook to me, but also not only for Asian consumers and companies, and I would say also for global companies with ambition to shape that future in Asia. With that, uh, Tiago, I would love to ask you to help dig a bit deeper into these insights that Naomi just laid out. More than anything, the word growth is the keyword that characterizes consumers and consumption alike in Asia, and will do so going forward. What is your perspective on Asia's growth over the next decade? And in particular, how do you see the Asian consumers and consumption evolving coming out of the current pandemic? So as Naomi told us, we explore in this research a very positive outlook of Asia's growth. But it's probably worth starting with kind of the big elephant in the room at the moment, which is the pandemic that has had a tremendous impact in Asia. So by latest estimates, there could be as many as 170 million more people in poverty today than there would have been otherwise. So obviously, this is a challenge not to be underestimated. However, by taking a longer 
term horizon to the growth of Asia, what we see is that the fundamentals of growth are still in place. So as Naomi said, there's a $10 trillion opportunity, which we're used to calling it's half the picture of global growth. So one out of every $2 of global consumption growth over the next decade is likely to originate in Asia. And there's nuances to this story, right? So there's an aspect of Asia's middle class continuing to swell. And we talk about a a 30-year reversal. We used to have 3 billion people, if we look back to 2000, they were not yet in the middle class, kind of getting there. If we look 10 years from now, we'll have 3 billion people solidly within Asia's middle class. So this is very much a story of a rising tide lifting a lot of ships. But even if we dig a bit deeper and we look within Asia's middle class, what we see is a climbing up the income pyramid. And we see more and more of Asia's growth coming from the upper echelons of the middle class. Over the past 20 years, kind of saw 80% of growth coming from the lower tiers of the middle class as basically consumers started to enter the middle class. Over the next 10 years, we're likely to see 80% of growth coming from the top two tiers of the middle class. So it's very much a shift in the nature of the growth that we're going to see in Asia over the next 10 years. And that's obviously very exciting because it dramatically shifts the type of consumption patterns that we observe in the region, and it opens up a lot of new opportunities for companies serving Asian consumers. Listening to you, Tiago, what I'm taking away is that capturing the growth in Asia will require taking a much more granular look into the different segments that will evolve under vastly different dynamics. Naomi, I want to come back to you uh, for your views on what are the major consumer trends and segments that will drive that growth. The story of what we have been mentioning as McKinsey Global Institute and also across all parts of the world is that the world will become a tale of not countries but cities. And I think the story rings very true in Asia as urbanization progresses even further. Over the past decade already, the urban population in most of Asia's countries have increased from 43% to almost nearly 50%. And this has literally been a move of population of almost half a billion people. So urbanization is very relevant in Asia, and especially as the economy grows in these urban cities, it's always a watch out, and we do need to think about not a country strategy, but really a city strategy at this point. However, I think just looking at the number of people moving into these urban cities won't really be enough to look at the future of Asia. It's actually a lot of things that we need to think about is how will the income class change within each of these cities and the speed and the relevance will be different depending on which city you're looking into. But as a general trend, consumers in urban areas are becoming richer and consuming more per capita basis and also their digital literacy and the way they consuming this modern day world will rapidly change. So with all of these shifts happening and the need, as you say, Wonsik, for a more granular look, depending on the category in the sector and also the business model you're in, companies will really need to look at different ways of where their growth will come from. And we see really three demographic changes come out. One is aging, the second is smaller households, and third is really the rise of the digital natives, which I think are hot topics in everyone's minds. If I may start with the aging um, population, especially in Northern Asia, senior consumption is really expected to increase rapidly, potentially growing almost as twice as fast as consumption by the rest of the population. 
Of course, everyone has told the story. I am from Japan, so the aging population is a topic that's very relevant in my country. And everyone has been looking to see how they serve this. But I think the one thing for the next 10 years that companies really need to be aware of is that the seniors of next day are not the seniors of yesterday. Most notably, they are very, very radically adapting to online. To give one factoid, by 2030, almost 100% of seniors in Japan and South Korea are expected to be online. This means that you know, the traditional granny and grandpa image of they're always talking on the phone and faxing things is, is a thing of yesterday. These people will be on smartphones and actually be very, very active digitally as well. I think the pandemic that we've seen, because everyone did need to stay home, has accelerated this change because seniors needed to be online to do the things they wanted to do. In China, the share of the internet population age 60 and above doubled in 2020 from 6% to 11%. So it's literally been a decade of change in a couple of months. Already, a lot of this senior consumption is changing its form. Now, China's version of TikTok, which is called Douyin, is really viewed as a social media key opinion leader platform. And it is a very fast growing media site. DD or JD, you know, have developed apps and they dedicate customer services, particularly tailored for this segment. Japan's largest cable television operator, JCOM, have lost telehealth service in 2021 during the summer, which really has tried to accelerate the whole home medication and receive medical treatment at home. And these are just a few examples. But the combination of online and seniors, and it's a word that we use. To discuss this is like the Instagram y situation is becoming very quickly reality and something to embrace. Tiago, what's your view on the smaller households? It's one of the questions that we heard a lot as we conducted this research as to our perspective of the, the shrinking household across Asia. And I think the first thing to say it, it is a very large phenomenon. So, across practically every country in Asia over the last 15 years, we saw average household sizes decline by, say, 10 to 20 percent. If you look at countries such as Japan and South Korea, already today, roughly one third of the population lives in a single household. And what this means is that, again, the nature of consumption is going to shift because of this. And there's a few interesting aspects to this. One is obviously single households tend to consume more digital entertainment. Another one is that everything is going a little bit mini. So the packages of the goods that you buy in supermarkets have been shrinking over the past decade across many Asian countries. The type of homes that consumers will seek are, are likely to be smaller. Even cars in some regions are experiencing this. The perhaps a bit more surprising aspect is also how these single households are essentially looking for new forms of companionship. So There's kind of two aspects to this. One is pet ownership, as really took off across the region. So, if you look at South Korea, China, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, in all of these countries, the rate of folks owning pets has really exploded over the past five, 10 years. But it's not just organic, even digital companions have started to emerge. And there's a couple of really interesting examples. For example, CIYs in China, which is basically an AI friend or AI companion, now has over 600 million users. So it's really about how companies understand the differing needs of these single households and find ways to meet them because this phenomenon has been playing out for the last decade and is expected to continue and perhaps even accelerate in the coming years. Naomi, back to you. 
The digital natives, so probably a combination of Gen Zs and millennials, has been on everyone's minds, I think, for consumers. And people have been really wanting to figure out about how these consumers are essentially different than Gen X. And we do see big changes. And where this will flourish is really in the next 10 years, is especially the Gen Z start becoming earning and working class, and then they start becoming consumers. They are now adults, and they're increasing their incomes and finding new ways to spend in an impactful way. They will really comprise for around 40 to 50% of the region's population, also consumption by 2030. So this is a not-to-be-missed um, segment. As we all know, by the definition of digital natives, they are online all the time, and they are influenced by online all the time. But where their online footprint really varies by region, where they get influenced, so this also requires a granular look, it is not a one-size-fits-all story. What we find interesting about these Gen Zs and Millennials digital natives is they are really, really tough crowd to satisfy. And this is due to that they are much more enriched by information and their literacy on gathering data and also the experience and the way they have skills to really find things from almost the other side of the world, which makes essentially them a really hard to please crowd. You know, they want high quality products at affordable prices, and they actually have the means to find good products at a really good deal. And they will be actively searching bargains and deals. We find that in research that they do this actually much, much more than their previous generations. The second point is on really the ubiquity of products. They are a very interesting crowd where they want to not be part of the crowd, but they don't want to be out of the crowd. They want to have brands that stand out and say something about themselves in a unique kind of way, but recognizable enough so that people can understand that they are unique. So it is going to be a very interesting 10 years for brands that aim to serve this group because you need to hit the right balance of being relevant but not do, being too mass and also do it in a very special way where it does look personalized while managing the price um, sensitivity of this crowd as well. The third point is where re they really get influenced and we do see a radical shift toward video formats. In one of our researches, 70% of Gen Z and 60% of millennials say they learn about new brands based on video-based social media, such as YouTube, at least once a month. So this platform is really becoming a brand-finding and exploration platform. Companies really need to find ways to connect to new consumers through this way. Once you do find the way to connect, though, they do become very accessible, as they are also always on the phone. And more than 30% say they spend more than six hours a day on their mobile phones. So once you can reach them, they are very easy to access, but very hard to grab attention from. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. and Tiago, this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, under the overarching trend of urbanization, it is really interesting to realize that trends that are big and small, like aging, the rise of smaller households, digital natives, and even the rising pet ownership are really reshaping the landscape of Asian consumers and consumption. Certainly a lot to digest and capitalize on, for sure. Tiago, 
In light of these profound demographic trends, what are some of the shifts in consumer patterns and consumption that we see in the Asian region? So I think one of the first things we realized when, when doing our research is that consumers are redefining a little bit the way that they consume and even what they consider consumption to be. What do I mean by this? Whereas the, the conventional model for a lot of consumers was to just buy something outright, we are now witnessing a little bit of the rise of new forms of ownership. What are some examples of this? One that's becoming really prevalent in the region is obviously instead of owning, to use something. So we talk about the sharing economy, the rental economy, which has been the subscription economy as well, which have been really exploding in the region. So by some estimates, if you look at Japan, China and Australia, between 60 to 90 percent of adults have at least one subscription service. In many of the larger cities in China and in Jakarta in Indonesia, for example, a lot of consumers are moving from owning their homes outright to renting them instead. It's obviously a complex story that involves both consumer preferences, but also economic pressures. But there is a, an undeniable shift that a lot of consumers are making from owning something to just renting or subscribing to something. A second related phenomenon to this is that, that even when consumers own something, they often own something secondhand. So if you look at Korea, if you look at China, their secondhand markets are absolutely exploding and have roughly doubled over the, the past five to 10 years. And finally, even the nature of the goods that consumers buy is changing. So we see a pervasive shift from physical goods to digital goods. And across APAC, a lot of these digital goods are growing at 20, 30, 40% per year, which is five to 10 times sometimes the order of magnitude of overall GDP growth. Now, the way that consumers a lot of times access these digital goods is different. And one big phenomenon that's playing out is sort of like the emergence of digital ecosystems. Naomi, do you want to share your perspective on sort of the emergence of these digital ecosystems? I mean, what we're calling here is the digital ecosystems or the big conversions. And I do think it's a global phenomenon. And, you know, apps and services are no longer a standalone that consumers have to find. As apps and services have exploded, you know, I think consumers are now starting to come back to like converge model where they want things to work in a seamless way and they are fine working in that space. What we see in Asia is there are different models. The Western ecosystems are not necessarily the main systems happening in Asia and they're very local. But what we see happening in Asia very quickly is what we call the super app model, where one application adds on new functions and they evolve into an ecosystem on its own. The first thing we see here is that, you know, in this evolution, which we've observed, is it initially starts with a very core function that is a daily function, high frequency use. Most of the major super apps in each country started from this. For instance, WeChat and Kakaotalk really emerged from the instant messaging function. Alipay, you know, started from payments. And in Southeast Asia, like services such as Grab, Gojek, um, really started from a rideshare service. And this was the initial one. And they went a few years, really, with this main service taking up penetration and becoming a national brand. Because it was a high usage brand, it got the habitual for the users that they actually access this every day. And then 
toward the mid-stages of their growth, they started really aggregating additional services to this platform which people access on a daily basis, and therefore they you know, emerged very quickly to penetrate areas which they had not previously done before. Um, WeChat was really a messaging app in the early stages between 2011 and up to 2016. So for five years, it was known as a messaging app. And then 2014, roughly, they started this conversions element. And then they really started growing to explore new functions. Therefore, expanding their revenue per customer and really expanded um, to 10 domains today. Obviously, with the more domains they cover, the more they are creating a virtuous cycle with their consumers because now they're on WeChat for money functions all the time. Due to this conversions that happened actually pretty locally in Asia, um, one of the characteristics that we see is that, as mentioned before, it is much more locally driven and locally native, meaning each country kind of almost has its own super app and regional moves were not very radical until now. We are starting to see some exceptions. For instance, Grab is really growing across multiple countries in Southeast Asia, and they're really also growing within each country. So regional apps are really starting to emerge. And obviously, all of the platform players have the appetite to grow into other regions as well. So we do think that there will be still heavy competition on who becomes the ultimate super app and who can expand the most usage. But it's a very interesting space here. Tiago, what do you think about eco responsibility element? Probably the, the last shift worth calling out here is the way that Asian consumers are also shifting to a much more eco-responsible way of consuming. And it's in some ways a, a quite surprising story. So whatever basically poll or consumer survey you look at, there is one clear message emerging, which is that Asian consumers are quite concerned about sustainability and they want to change their consumption patterns to basically turn to a positive cycle there. Now, the question we get a lot out of this is, okay, there's a concern. Consumers say they want to act, but are they actually acting? Are they actually putting their money where their mouth is, in a way? And it's an interesting nuanced story. So in recent polls, you've got over 80% of consumers in Asia saying that they have somehow shifted some of their purchasing habits to become more eco-friendly, in a way. But it's not all a positive story. And there's clearly a challenge here, which is that for a lot of categories, buying green implies a price premium. And green categories are basically more expensive for a lot of these consumers than their regular counterparts. So if you ask consumers, they will tell you that they are willing to pay more. The question is, how much more? So you might find that a consumer is willing to pay 10% more for a green alternative, but then face the fact that that alternative is 30 or 40% more expensive, which is the case for a lot of apparel brands and a lot of consumer packaged goods. So really, while we do see growth in green happening already today, the key to unlocking even more of this green growth is going to be a combination of factors. Number one, basically, as incomes rise, what we see time and time again is so does consumer willingness to pay more of a premium rise with the increased discretionary income. The second is basically cost innovation. And we basically see that companies will need to find ways to create sustainable alternatives for which their price premiums are slightly lower. And third, there's a powerful force playing out, which is basically the regulatory framework. And we see more and more governments in Asia taking action to basically steer both consumers and companies in a way that to shape their consumption patterns to be more sustainable. 
So in a nutshell, one sec, what, what we see here is a large transformation of consumption patterns. Consumers might not buy, they might rent or subscribe, they might buy secondhand. Even when they do buy, they turn more eco-conscious or they turn much more to digital goods and sort of digital ecosystems become the center of gravity of a lot of their consumption activity. Thank you, Tiago and Naomi. Perhaps the big taglines on the shifts uh, from big convergence to eco-responsibility and also the notion of ownership may sound obvious, but if you peel the layers, each one of these probably involve much more nuanced approach for different companies as consumers become much more environmentally conscious. And that has lots of implications for companies to not just tweak, but perhaps transform the way they design and serve their consumers through innovative products and services. Naomi, with that, I want to bring it all home, perhaps with implications to companies and businesses. The future of Asian consumers and consumption will bring massive opportunities, as we have been discussing, as well as some profound changes. So with all of the revelations that you and Tiago have shared today, how can companies and businesses, not just Asian companies and businesses, but also global ones, reorient their business strategy to capture these new segments of Asian consumers? And in your words, what must they do to thrive in the future? I guess after months of, you know, thinking about this and research and various discussions, where we're coming to in terms of a very simple conclusion is that Asia is a complex place and it is also a dynamically changing place. And therefore, it's the Asia strategy that a lot of companies may have thought in the future will really, really need to be much more granular and also be focused on what is impactful. We shared several shifts in demographics in terms of aging um, Gen Zs and Millennials, as well as obviously shifts in where the urbanization will happen. We also see these behavioral shifts like the one Tiago just mentioned. But for one company to grasp all of it and try to manage all of it at equal pace is just really not possible, or they may try to hit too many things and miss the entire field. So what we believe is really important for companies is to really look at these different shifts and define what are the relevant crossroads between the demographic shifts as well as the behavioral shifts and their urban footprint, and really find what will impact them in their mid to long-term strategy and plan going forward. Different sectors and different companies will have different views on this. A lot of companies in China will need to look at the huge demographic shift probably in a more prominent way because China has a huge Gen Z and millennial population, which is big because China has a huge population. But they also have a very new set of seniors that are coming into seniorhood in a completely different way than their predecessors. When you look at a sector example, for instance, the consumer packaged goods space, especially when you operate in Southeast Asia, you will need to think of this hugely growing millennials and Gen Z group, which will also start having family, but also this behavioral shift of echo and social responsibility. And for these early families whose incomes are still rising, but they have also been brought up in a world where social responsibility is important. How to serve mothers and fathers in this world if you're in the world of milk or where you're in the world of baby food in an economical way will really pose a huge challenge. But if you can crack this, it's, there's a huge gem to be earned. For instance, the, one of the leading milk producers 
Vinamilk in Vietnam is investing in an eco-friendly dairy farm that doesn't use pesticides and chemicals, fertilizers, and actually uses biodegradable packaging. And this is looking forward to these Gen Zs and millennial new moms and dads who are going to care about these things enough to spend. Really, when you think of out of Asia and trying to enter into Asia or expanding in Asia, how do you leverage the big digital ecosystem in relevance with some of the home country? And they are investing a lot in, you know, tying up with Tmall. So there's a lot of things happening in that as well. So a lot will happen around partnerships. We talked a lot about trends, crossroads, and different shifts that are happening, which we are observing today, which we do foresee that will have huge impact on the next 10 years. But one thing, Wonsik, that I'd really like to highlight in this podcast is also the courage to look beyond. And this is going beyond analytics. Asia has shown shifts that were unprecedented and unexpected in these last two years. And these disruptions, as technology arises, will continue to happen. In order for companies to really brace themselves for the rapid shifts and disruptions which may be happening in Asia, it will be important for them to have not just look into trends that are already emerging in, in a relevant way, but to also find signals for potential change and imagine scenarios where there are disruption and provide options for them to react to them in earlier on. To do th this, just looking at economic changes and demographic changes is not enough. There will be look out for signals. And this is why we believe a combination of numbers analysis as we have done in this report, but also really employing a design-based thinking approach to couple that to really look into the futures um, as a vision. And we do see a lot of companies stepping foot in this, which we think will be a big trend going forward as companies try to future-proof Asia strategies. Naomi and Tiago, thank you so much for sharing your insights into the future of consumers in Asia. I hope this session has been helpful to our listeners. Summing up all the insights from growth overall to consumer trends and the consumption shifts, the need to have a granular view, the need to look beyond the obvious, and the need to truly innovate resonated quite a lot with me personally. Those of you seeking more detailed insights can go to McKinsey.com for a full report on the future of consumers in Asia. Personally, being based in Asia, I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of this great future, not only as a business professional, but perhaps more fundamentally as a consumer myself. Thank you for joining. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.